Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. In 2020, a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court turned back Oklahoma's century-long interference with the Muscogee Creek Nation's sovereignty and reaffirmed the tribe's reservation boundaries. Overnight, the Creek Nation regained control of some 3 million acres of land, including parts of Tulsa. Of course, how the decision is playing out is not so simple, but the decision continues to have major implications far beyond Oklahoma. We'll talk with two historians who put the McGirt vs. Oklahoma decision into context right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Two regional tribal organizations have sued the federal government over failed Western Alaska salmon runs. The Association of Village Council Presidents and the Tanana Chiefs Conference have named two federal agencies as defendants in the case, the National Marine Fisheries Service and the Department of Commerce. The lawsuit was filed on their behalf by Earth Justice. AVCP and Tanana Chiefs represent about 100 tribes along the Yukon and Kuskokwim Rivers, a landmass that stretches from southwest Alaska to the Canadian border. Jennifer Hooper, the Natural Resources Director for AVCP, says back-to-back -back seasons of fishery collapses have affected every aspect of life for people in the region. It's just been a compounding situation of huge food security concerns and lack of, of salmon, which of course is protein and, and food, but more so it's the culture and the, the traditions that people have experienced for thousands and thousands of years. Salmon bycatch is at the heart of the complaint, which was filed in U.S. District Court last week. Bycatch are fish that are caught intentionally and discarded as fishing boats pursue other species. In this case, the lawsuit targets factory trawlers in the Bering Sea that fish for pollock, a ground fish used in popular flaked fish products. Brian Ridley is chairman of the Tanana Chiefs Conference. He says the salmon crisis may soon reach a point of no return. If immediate large-scale action doesn't take place by either the state or the feds, we might not even have a fishing resource left in our rivers. I mean, we're darn near the level where I think endangered species could start coming into play. And that's all we're trying to do is not get to that point. The lawsuit claims federal fisheries managers relied on outdated studies when it set ground fish catch limits for the 2023 and 2024 seasons and failed to consider what it calls monumental changes in the Bering Sea and Aleutian Islands ecosystems that have taken place over the last two decades. The fishing industry has argued there's no conclusive evidence that bycatch has caused the decline of salmon, but even so, has taken steps to reduce incidental catches. NOAA Fisheries, which oversees the National Marine Fisheries Management Service, says it cannot comment on litigation. Earth Justice is the same environmental law firm which recently filed suit on behalf of three other Southwest Alaska tribes to block the Donlin Gold Mine. On Tuesday, members of the Grand Canyon Tribal Coalition joined U.S.-Arizona lawmakers Representative Raul Grijalva and Senator Kirsten Sinema in launching an effort to create federal protections near the Grand Canyon. They're calling on President Biden to use his authorities to designate a Grand Canyon National Monument. The proposal includes more than one million acres near Grand Canyon National Park. Tribal representatives took part in a virtual press conference expressing the need to protect the area, which is culturally and spiritually significant 
sent to tribes in the Southwest. Timothy Nuvangyama is chairman of the Hopi tribe. The creator gave us a gift, and that gift is in the form of the Grand Canyon. Uh, that gift is not only to the tribal nations that um, have that intimate connection with it, but it's a gift to the state of Arizona. It's a gift to the United States. It's a gift to the entire world. So we do have to um, protect the beauty and grandeur of this uh, area that we call home, many tribes call home. The Hopi tribe wholeheartedly supports this designation because it measures protect the Grand Canyon's physical beauty and preserves its natural and cultural resources. The designation would ban uranium mining. The area is also an important watershed for the Colorado River. The Grand Canyon Tribal Coalition includes representatives from more than a dozen tribes. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by the Gathering of Nations Powwow, a live event taking place April 27th, 28th, and 29th on the powwow grounds of Expo New Mexico, featuring song, dance, trader's market, horse parade, and more. Tickets available at gatheringofnations.com and at the gates. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling. A Supreme Court ruling in 2020 is arguably one of the most important decisions in Indian law in over a century. A new book by scholars Robert Miller and Robbie Etheridge explores the magnitude of the landmark McGirt v. Oklahoma ruling and the history of the tribe at its center. A Promise Kept, the Muscogee Creek Nation and McGirt v. Oklahoma looks at the history of both the tribe and the legal decisions that set the stage for the momentous decision. Today we'll speak with Miller and Etheridge about their new book and examine what we know about what has happened since. Do you have questions about the McGirt decision and the historical factors that led up to it? Do you live in Oklahoma and have concerns about how the McGirt ruling impacts your life? Join our conversation by calling in 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also post a comment on our social media our Twitter handle is 180099Native. On the line in Phoenix, Arizona is Robert Miller. He is the co-author of A Promise Kept. He's also a law professor at Arizona State University and a tribal judge. He is Eastern Shawnee. Bob, welcome back to Native America Calling. Thank you for having me on the show. And speaking with us from Oxford, Mississippi is Robbie Etheridge. She is a co-author of A Promise Kept and Professor Emerita of Anthropology at the University of Mississippi. Robbie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Well, first off, I want to congratulate you both on this wonderful new book. I enjoyed reading it. It's made up of two parts, a historical analysis of the Muscogee Nation, which you wrote, Bobby, uh, followed by an extensive legal analysis of the McGirt case written by Bob. Good to have a lawyer in the room, huh, Bob? <laughs> you always need one. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, tell us, Bob, how did you and Bobby first connect and decide to write a book together? Well, Robbie and I knew each other through the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia. And I was asked to write this book by University of Oklahoma Press by an editor that I already knew. And I just knew I, you know, I have the legal background. Like you said, I'm a law professor, but I did not have the historical background. And so immediately I thought of Robbie because she has written and edited four books on tribes. She primarily, I think, well, let her say what her expertise is, but the tribes in the southeast. And so I knew she would know about the Muscogee Nation. And so I called her, and she agreed immediately, and we had just a wonderful partnership writing this book together. Robbie, does that sound about right to you, how you and uh, Bob started this collaboration? Yes, indeed. Um, yes, when Bob called me to, to ask me to do this, I agreed to do it because I do have my, my expertise is in the southeastern Indians, and I have written extensively on the Muscogees, um, but I hadn't written much about the post-removal era, so it gave me also the opportunity to, to look at the post-removal era for the Muscogees in more detail. So I, I jumped at the opportunity, and plus I knew Bob, and I, I, I figured working with him would be wonderful, and it, ha it was, and it still is. And Bob, who did you primarily write the book for? Is it for Native readers, non-Native readers? Who are you targeting? Well, I'm target targeting, we were targeting the general public. Uh, I am a citizen of a tribe in Oklahoma, as you said, uh, as you mentioned, the Eastern Shawnee tribe, and I, I knew this would have a major impact in Oklahoma. I, I, I described this case as a bombshell in articles I wrote earlier on. This was a shock to the state of Oklahoma, and I think the governor of Oklahoma is still in shock, and the government. And uh, as we foretold in our book, there will be 30 to 50 years of either litigation or else negotiations and contracting about how to handle all these problems. So this – McGirt, of course, like any U.S. Supreme Court case, is precedent for the entire nation, and this has application to other tribes too, but crucially in Oklahoma. Well, as you mentioned, I mean, this uh, – the impacts of this uh, could resonate for decades to come, and it's just so fascinating. And the book, it touches on, on so many issues and so many topics, and one of the key takeaways I came away with is that it underscores the contemporary significance of Indian treaties. And that's important because today, treaties, as you mentioned in the book, are too often viewed through a historical lens. So with that said, how did you approach uh, writing this book? And, uh, and, and if you will, give us a brief summary of the McGirt decision and how you translated all of that into the written page. Well, a brief summary of McGirt is an example of Justice Gorsuch joining the court. He was the first Trump appointee. Indian country was not too worried about his appointment, and we're, we're actually pretty happy because he was a judge in the Tenth Circuit United States Court of Appeals from the West, and he had set on maybe 70 cases, Indian law cases, in the 11 years he was on the Tenth Circuit. So Indian country was happy that someone coming to the court knew about Indian law. And he has applied treaties to the letter. As a strict constructionist, he is going to read that treaty, and then he's going to ask the question, did Congress ever change that treaty? And if Congress has not, then the treaty has to be applied. Article 6 of our Constitution is called both the Treaty Clause and the Supremacy Clause of the U.S. Constitution. 
and treaties are defined as the supreme law of the land. So in at least two cases, three that I can think of, Justice Gorsuch has strictly read an Indian treaty and said it's never been altered, and he's applied it today no matter what the consequences. And McGirt demonstrates that. He joined the four liberal justices, we would call them, and McGirt was decided by the slimmest of margins by a five-to-four decision. And that's uh, a bit of an irony here because uh, Justice Gorsuch does have a conservative background, uh, and some people were surprised that uh, he would come out uh, in that vote the way he did, right? Yes. Uh, I believe since he's been on the court since April of 2017, he's set on nine Indian law cases, and he's voted in the tribal position. He's voted yes uh, eight times. Uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who's joined the court with no background in Indian law, and she has set now on four Indian law cases and has voted three times the pro-tribal way. So, yes, people were a little worried about the Trump appointee, Trump appointees and how they might vote in Indian law cases. But so far, uh, it's been stellar. Now, at the heart of this issue is the state of Oklahoma choosing to ignore reservation boundaries that were established by these treaties uh, well over 100 years ago uh, and usurp tribal land in, in a way that no other state does. So tell us, uh, in you know, not getting too, too detailed, but too technical, but, but how now does the McGirt ruling impact that? And why is it uh, the most significant ruling in well over a century? Well, Robbie will address the historical aspects of that, but the legal point is that Oklahoma and the Congress – let me just take one step back. When Congress authorizes a new state to come into the union, it's called – Congress drafts an Enabling Act, and the Oklahoma Enabling Act of 1906 is dramatic in this case. Congress used the word Indian Reservation in that Oklahoma Enabling Act 19 times. So Congress recognized there were Indian reservations in the Oklahoma Territory and the Indian Territory, it was called, and those two merged to become the state of Oklahoma. And Congress demanded that those two federal territories disclaim any jurisdiction over Indian tribes, Indian lands, etc., And so the Oklahoma Constitution of 1907, the very year later, Oklahoma does become a state. And in Article I of Oklahoma's Constitution, it says we will never claim jurisdiction over Indian lands, tribal lands, tribal nations. And as you already said, and as Robbie can well attest, for 107 years, Oklahoma ignored that and did its best to steal Indian lands. Now, Robbie, uh, can you provide uh, some context with regard to the key historical events that, that set the stage for, for the McGirt decision? Well, yeah, I think we'd have to go back to the removal era when the uh, Muscogee were, were uh, removed from present-day Alabama and Georgia, and that was in the 1830s. And then um, in, you know, after the Civil War, all those previous treaties were, were, were voided, but the United States entered into a new treaty with the Creek Nation in 1866, which reaffirmed the boundaries that had been established in Oklahoma. Um, you know, with the with the with the original removal treaties, and then, as Bob says, with uh, you know, with the Oklahoma Enabling Act, and later the land, the Creek was had 
owned very much of Oklahoma at the time, a huge swath of land. That got divided in two, in half practically. And then, um, but the uh, eastern half was um, Oklahoma. I mean, was uh, Muscogee territory. And this was this was uh, put in the treaties and you know uh, verified by Congress and so on. And so, you know, after that, after Oklahoma was um, made into a state. Uh, you see uh, many legislative acts at both the state and and even the federal level working to undermine and you know chip away at native sovereignty and jurisdictions throughout Oklahoma throughout Indian country in fact um, and Oklahoma in many ways um, illegally intruded on a lot of the jurisdictions of the of, of the Muscogees and others in Oklahoma um, and this went on for over a hundred years. Uh, and so when Gorsuch, you know, in, in his uh, in the decision that he wrote, it's very clear he's going back to those those that 1866 treaties, and he's saying this is the land, this is the land that's Creek land, and all the stuff that Oklahoma has been up to for the last hundred years was basically illegal. And so we're reinstating we're reinstating the legality of what what we had, you know, by treaty a hundred years ago. Well, folks, uh, to quote Justice Neil Gorsuch, on the far end of the Trail of Tears was a promise. Forced to leave their ancestral lands in Georgia and Alabama, the Creek Nation received assurances that their new lands in the West would be secure forever. And our two guests today uh, have taken it upon themselves to write a book about this very issue. Both Robert Miller and Robbie Etheridge have teamed up, and uh, the new book is titled A Promise Kept, The Muscogee Creek Nation and McGirt versus Oklahoma. Anybody with a question or a comment about this issue or this book, 1-800-996-2848 is the number to call. More with Robert and Robbie on the other side of this break. The country's largest federally owned utility company has cataloged thousands of remains and is taking steps to repatriate them to tribes. The Tennessee Valley Authority collected the remains through decades of development. We'll find out about the history of the remains and other items and where the process goes from here on the next Native America Calling. Osio, ite unole goge i osta yuna nehi dinioli. Asena doi dana nelohaskenasku, yunolsta nelita ale adane nulti. Tedelkwasti, yitadanti yitadulina in shirkids.gov, wigoli ya. He ake tenosa Medicare ale Medicaid unadalka in. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're discussing a new book titled A Promise Kept, The Muscogee Creek Nation and McGirt versus Oklahoma. And we've got the authors on the show today, Robert Miller and Robbie Etheridge. What questions or comments do you have about the book or any questions about the McGirt decision? You can join us by calling in 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. And Bob, I'd like to ask you, you know, uh, before break, uh, you folks did a, a really good job of kind of setting the tone and, and giving us some some history as well as some of the legal precedents uh, that are at stake here. But uh, can you tell us, I mean, what has changed and, and how now has the path been cleared for this lawsuit on behalf of McGirt? And uh, were there other attempts uh, in the past to undo the state's wrongful jurisdiction claims? 
Well, those are big questions. We'll need the whole hour. <laughs> okay. um, I'll give you one example. I, in, a, in an article I wrote earlier with someone else, we calculated that the Oklahoma, the Muscogee Creek lands were about 135,000 acres before McGirt. So on July the 8th, 2020, the Muscogee Creek Nation had jurisdiction, governmental authority over about 135,000 acres. The morning of July the 9th, I wake up, I read that first sentence that you've read from the opinion that the promise was at the end of the Trail of Tears, and I knew the tribe had won. And now the borders of the Muscogee Creek Nation are re-recognized, as Robbie said, pursuant to that 1866 treaty, as three and a quarter million acres. So the tribe's jurisdiction, no land ownership changed hands. Uh, there were headlines the next day that people were thinking they were going to lose their homes or something. No, it's no different than if one state's borders got bigger. And it, you know, what if Texas's border took over the panhandle of Oklahoma? Well, that would be Texas now, and those people would live in Texas, but no one loses land ownership. So, but the responsibilities on the Muscogee Creek Nation now and on the federal government and the reduction of responsibilities, jurisdiction, and power for the state – are what cause enormous issues. And I'll conclude with this point. I live in Arizona that used to be the state with the most Indian country within the state borders. 27% of Arizona is defined as Indian country under federal law. Oklahoma, that might have been 1% recognized, 2% Indian law before 2020, is now 43% Indian country. As you said in the introduction, the city of Tulsa is now completely within either the Muscogee Creek Reservation or the Cherokee Nation Reservation. So post-McGirt, I'll conclude real quickly here, post-McGirt, Oklahoma state courts have now used McGirt, the precedent and analysis of McGirt, to re-recognize the borders of about nine other tribal nations in Oklahoma, including my own tribe, the Eastern Shawnee. And that's how we end up with 43% of the state is now Indian country. Vastly okay. expanded tribal responsibilities, vastly expanded federal, and reduced state power. All righty. And we're going to talk more about what that means in terms, some of the, terms some of these jurisdictional issues and such. But before we do that, let's go to the phones. We've got several callers on the line already. First, we have Chanupa up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, listening on Keeley. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, thank you, Wopilatunko, for having me on. Listen, um, to the two uh, law uh, uh, individuals, always keep in mind, people, that my country, known as Turtle Island or the Island Hill, has always been an uh, independent nation-state status, okay, towards every indigenous people throughout the continent. And one of the things that is very difficult for people to understand, I understand sovereignty. But independence was before sovereignty. And these are quotes that come from the English continent. So always remind yourself, as long as the rivers flow and the grass grows, this land will always be independent. Nothing more, nothing less than said. That's the real power. We do not exercise that. We don't expedite that, and we don't explain it. I thank you for hearing my quote there because... Without independence, 
there is no freedom. Don't forget, 4th of July is Independence Day right there. That's a symbolic honor for everybody that celebrate fireworks. Thank you, and have a great day from Oglala Country here on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Hokai! Well, Tanupa, thank you for another great call. And uh, I want to have uh, Bob, I'm going to give you a chance to respond to that. Chanupa says, independence comes before sovereignty. Would you agree with that? Um, to some extent, yes. I mean, in the United States, we have a federalist system. States exercise their sovereignty, but it's within the federal government and within the powers that the federal government uh, exercises under the Constitution, the supremacy clause of the Constitution that I mentioned earlier. The Supreme Court in 1831 defined tribes as domestic dependent nations. So under federal law, tribes exercise their jurisdiction, but limited sometimes by federal law. So it's a bit of federalism, uh, but I agree with him that independence and self-governance and self-determination is, is what we Indian nations and Indian peoples have to do to improve our lives, to exercise our sovereignty, and just even to protect our homelands and ourselves. Let's take another caller, Devon, who is listening on the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming on station KOYA. Hello, Devon. Um, good morning, my relatives. My name is Walks Out of Water. Um, the, my English name is Devin Oldman. I come from the Wind River Indian Reservation. So just real quick, I wanted to thank the callers, and I wanted to thank my brother, Chinupa Guhamani, for jumping on. He was the one who called me to call and get on this line. I want to thank the authors of this book that came out, right, The um, uh, regarding the McGirt case and the title of the book, I Promise Kept, right? So we're going to jump in. I'm, I'm going to take about a minute here. I'm going to try to boil this down as simply as I can. Okay. I'm going to reference independence, right? So for us as tribal nations, it has always been through that independent structure of us interpreting our agreements that we made with the United States of America based on the Constitutional Code of Authority, which is known today as CFR, the Codes of Federal Regulations that have been delineated out of that original prospect of the Constitution. Right. And so us as tribes, we sell ourselves every day because we don't take those interpretations into independent structures. So as long as we are collecting federal revenues and as long as we are connecting state revenues and we are using those for social welfare programs, we are still dependent nations. So that is where the United States is allowed to bully us into not filing suits, you know, with regards not just to boundaries, but to everyday living statuses that we are allowed to do, the four basic concepts of human life, the right to water, the right to land, the right to get your own food, the right to be who you are, right? And so for those four things that we've done since the creation of time, the right to shelter, right? I'm talking about the whole capitalistic system that we've been bred and born into to think that we have to go and live the American dream to accomplish before we had that. And now it's been bred and beat into us to think that we have to follow their system because we are not taking that independent look by interpreting our sacred agreements that we made through warfare with the United States government that we forced okay. them to make with us. Well, Devin, I appreciate that call. Uh, really strong convictions there coming from Devin up in Wind River uh, in the state of Wyoming. 
Uh, let's take another call now. We have Anthony, who is in Albuquerque, New Mexico, listening on station KUNM. Hi, Anthony. How are you doing? Uh, doing great. This is to Bob. This is to Bob. Um, I want to thank you. I met you here last month here in a conference here in Albuquerque, and um, I was so uh, awakened by your uh, knowledge of law, and I'm so grateful that we do have a Native American that uh, has this knowledge that you were able to stay in school and um, learn what you did because it woke me up. I mean, <laughs> what your knowledge had uh, opened me up to a whole new uh, insight, and I'm looking forward to purchasing that book. And I hope to meet you again someday, but you take care and keep that knowledge going with the support of Indian Native American people. Thank you. Well, thank you, Anthony. Bob, would you like to respond to Anthony or perhaps Devin, who spoke earlier? Well, I really appreciate Anthony's kind words about me. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, the, the other caller, I, my other primary research agenda is tribal economic development. And I agree 100% with what he said, that until tribal nations and individual Indians get free of relying on the United States, and he mentioned sometimes we are relying on states, we are not truly independent until we are self-sufficient economically, self-sufficient governmentally, and running our own affairs in our own country. So I teach my classes this all the time. I have a quote from one tribal chief in my uh, book from 2012 that we are not truly uh, sovereigns until we have economic uh, independence. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go back now to, to the McGirt ruling. And it's just astonishing, Bob, as you mentioned, uh, jurisdiction went from 135,000 acres uh, to three and a quarter of a million acres, just like that overnight. And I mean, you talked a little bit about some of the, the jurisdictional issues going forward, but I mean, what is next uh, for the state of Oklahoma, for tribes as well? Um, it, it just it seems like the ripple effects are, are just so numerous, uh, you know, hunting and fishing jurisdictions and, and other types of issues as well. Where do you see the legal fight going next? Well, the legal fight began almost immediately. The federal government wrote a letter to Oklahoma after the McGirt ruling saying that, Oklahoma, you have no longer the power to regulate surface mining over Muscogee Creek territory. And now, of course, that's the other tribes, too. I think I forgot to mention that something like 19 million acres of land in eastern Oklahoma are all now Indian country. So Oklahoma's power is severely restricted in those areas. So Oklahoma sued about the control of the surface mining laws, and it lost that case in uh, November on November 9th, 2022. And Oklahoma has appealed that case to the Tenth Circuit, but I, I think they will lose. Uh, you mentioned hunting and fishing. Oklahoma almost immediately canceled a compact it had with the Cherokee Nation, and I forget the second, it's either Chickasaw or Choctaws, about hunting and fishing licenses and hunting and fishing rights for tribal peoples. And so Oklahoma was unhappy with McGirt, and so they canceled that. I just want to give you one other example. The Indian Child Welfare Act is currently in front of the U.S. Supreme Court right now. Oral argument was heard November 9th. But be, by increasing the size of Indian country, like for Muscogee Creek, by over 25 times, the tribe's exclusive jurisdiction over Indian Child Welfare Act cases just increased from that 135,000 acres 
to now any Indian child living within those three and a quarter million acres. So that's just one example of a federal law that now applies that tribal governments use because of this expansion of jurisdiction. Tribes now have criminal jurisdiction over any Indian within 43% of Oklahoma now. So do the tribes have the police forces, the judges, public defenders, tribal prosecutors, jail space? This is an enormous uh, challenge for the federal government, for the tribal governments, and Oklahoma, of course, is unhappy. And how are tribes and the federal government uh, living up to this challenge? I mean, I are their courts overloaded? Are the jails overloaded? Are they able to handle all this increased uh, jurisdictional insight and oversight? In our book, uh, we finished that book, I think, May of 2022. So we tried to be as update as possible, up to date as possible. But of course, things proceeded in these later months. Uh, tribal governments have increased their budgets, increased their court systems, hired some courts, hired cops, hired parole officers, those kind of things. And while most of these tribes do not have tribal jails, they are contracting with local state, county, city jails to place people. I think uh, some of the tribes, I think Cherokee Nation has over a thousand compacts and agreements with various state agencies. And I've read somewhere in the paper that they have an agreement with every single city within now the re-recognized enormous Cherokee reservation to deal with law enforcement issues with the local county sheriffs and police departments. Uh, the federal government has passed uh, more money to hire more prosecutors, more federal defenders, and what's very interesting, to increase the number of federal judges in the northern, north and eastern part of Oklahoma. There are currently five new federal district court judges that are being nominated and advanced. So there's a shift in jurisdictional power and responsibilities. And again, that's why McGirt is a bombshell. Well, and it's also a bombshell outside of the Oklahoma, outside of the state of Oklahoma, Bob, because I, I, I just think other states and other tribes and other states are thinking to themselves, well, well, what about our reservations? What about our, our ancestral homelands? Is there perhaps a, a way for, or is there perhaps an argument that, that some of our, our reservation land has been removed from us or taken away from us? And is there perhaps a way that uh, it can be re-recognized or re-established in the way that these lands have been in Oklahoma? Is that something that other tribes and other states need to be thinking about as well? Absolutely. Now, Oklahoma is, or excuse me, the McGirt case is specific only to the Muscogee Creek Nation, the facts and the treaties that that nation signed. So it's not directly controlling in another tribe's history and another tribe's treaties from perhaps another state. But it shows that the Supreme Court is going to affirm and enforce these treaty rights, although, of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away since McGirt, and I mentioned she was replaced by Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So, you know, there's some question what the court would do today with another McGirt decision. But the McGirt decision was cited within just a few weeks of being issued by the Seventh Circuit United States Court of Appeals. And uh, I believe, I forget the name of the tribe, but the tribe won a suit about what had happened to its tribe's borders and this lower Court of Appeals cited McGirt. So it has precedential value in other states, but does not apply directly because the treaties and facts are different. Now, Bob, we're going to have to take a break in about another minute, but, but I want to ask you, because the high court decision maintains 
only Congress can disestablish a reservation. Are there attempts being made to do just that in Oklahoma, disestablish these lands? If there are, I'm, a very, I'm very afraid there are, but if there are, they're being done in the back room. And that's where Oklahoma has the power with its state senators, its state congressmen and women that tribes don't have. In 2005, an Oklahoma senator snuck a rider into a department of 400-page Department of Agriculture bill. And so there is a risk that something could happen in the Congress. But I think the tribes are vigilant. The tribes these days have more lobbyists, more attorneys. They have more resources. Surely Congress would not sneak something through in the middle of the night. But you never know. Well, the book is titled The Promise Kept, The Muskogee Creek Nation and McGirt versus Oklahoma. And we're learning all about it from the co-authors today, Robert Miller and Robbie Etheridge. And Robbie primarily handled the historical analysis of the book And we're going to talk with her more about that right after this break. So please stay with us. Support for the menu comes from Spirit Mountain Roasting Company, a small batch specialty coffee roaster located on the Fort Yuma Quetzon Reservation. Information and online ordering at spiritmountainroasting.com slash news. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications are accepted through May 31st at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. You're listening to Native America Calling. Join our conversation with Robert Miller and Robbie Etheridge and their new book, A Promise Kept. Call with your comments or questions by tapping 1-800-996-2848 on that touchscreen keypad. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also post on our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com, or go to our Facebook page, Twitter, or Instagram. We have Robbie Etheridge on the line. She's a co-author of A Promise Kept, and uh, she primarily handled the historical analysis in the book. And Robbie, could you give us a little bit more background on, on the significant treaties that apply to the McGirt case? And, and what are the main tenets of those treaties that Oklahoma and the U.S. government apparently continue to disregard? Well, again, like I said, I think I would start with the removal treaties uh, with the Muscogee Nation. This was, these were back in the 1820s and um, with the, uh, the Treaty of the Indian Agency. And this was, of course, the treaty that uh, was, uh, let me say, fraudulently uh, signed by, and then put forward and approved by Congress, um, in which the Muscogees uh, relinquished all of their lands east of the Mississippi River and then moved, well, were forcibly removed to Oklahoma. But in that, in that treaty, they were promised uh, a very specific very large tract of land in Oklahoma, and this land was mapped out. It was surveyed, and of course, at this time, other Indian nations from the uh, southeast and, and elsewhere were being removed. So all these boundaries of the Indian nations, in, especially in Oklahoma, were being mapped out and surveyed. And so this land was, you know, as uh, one of the callers said, given in perpetuity to the to the Muscogees and the other nations. And um, and then the Civil War happened, and um, actually the Muscogee Nation—I'll speak specifically about them—divided uh, over, you know, which side they would join, and there was a division. And but uh, in the end, the United States declared them as, uh, you know, enemies after the war, and so treated them as 
as, you know, enemies, defeated enemies. But in that, they did, uh, with, they did, uh, you know, formulate another treaty, the 1866 treaty. And this, in this treaty, it was, uh, you know, like I said, all the former treaties were null and void. But in 1866, this was a brand new treaty specifically with the, between the United States and the Creeks. And in that treaty, that those boundaries were reestablished then. And, and again, in perpetuity, and it does say things like as long as the grass grows and the river flows. And so this, this, this land was then, you know, and the creeks were given jurisdiction and sovereignty and self-government governance over this, in this, in this area. Um, now, like I said, they uh, ha then later, you know, actually it was in this treaty that the creek, uh, half of it was given to, you know, was uh, was uh, was open for American and Indian settlement, and then the other the eastern part was given to the to the creeks in perpetuity. So that treaty, that 1866 treaty, is the one that Gorsuch references. You know, that's that's it. That's the law of the land. Um, mm. But then I have to say that after that treaty, um, the federal and state governments, through various other treaties and then later legislative acts, uh, kept tearing away at the rights and and uh, jurisdictions of the Indian nations in Oklahoma. And uh, especially egregious were the was the allotment era. And the allotment era, of course, was when the United States was trying to allot taking taking the communal lands of these groups, these nations, and giving them to individuals or, you know, allotting them to individual citizens. And the Allotment Act was, um, you know, was an effort to disestablish the reservation, but it didn't. And it's very clear in the records it didn't. And, in fact, the Congress says it didn't. And and then later, uh, as, as Bob mentions, when Oklahoma is getting settled um, as a state, it it says many times in there that the Creek Reservation is still intact. So the Creek Reservation was never disestablished, even though the dissent to the uh, McGirt Act uh, argues that the allotment was an effort to disestablish the reservation. And in fact, they claim that it may have. But 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 you can read in all the legislation following the Allotment Act that that did not that did not happen. Okay. Um, so, and then, you know, after, and then, you know, in the 20th century, then, you know, things, uh, at least um, Oklahoma still keeps trying to, uh, like I said, intrude. Well, not trying. They do intrude on uh, jurisdictions, and especially in the, um, with the probate courts and with the guardianships that were um, back then during allotment, uh, the federal government could decide who was capable of handling their own individual people and families, which families and individuals were capable of handling their own affairs and which weren't. And if the federal government decided that a person was not capable of handling their own affairs by some, you know, I will have to say crazy criteria, um, then those persons were assigned guardians. And, and these guardians were almost inevitably um, usually white men. And the, the guardianship program was notoriously corrupt, notoriously corrupt, where people, these guardians were, you know, taking land from their, from the Indian owners and so on. And in all of those cases, Indian people brought those cases to the courts. And Oklahoma swooped in and said, we will handle those courts because they were just, the federal courts were being overwhelmed 
at the time. And so Oklahoma swoops in and starts taking over those and, and bit by bit starts, you know, intruding on various jurisdictions, various sovereignties, various rights on these, on the, uh, well, in this case, the Muscogees, but as well as others. And I think the McGirt case was um, a reset, you know, where Gorsuch is basic and, and the, you know, the Supreme Court says, this has been wrong for a hundred and something years, you know, and we're going to reset it. We're going to go back to the to the original boundaries that were set out in 1866 and um and and we're going to you know we 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 have to re we have to uh repair this you know and rectify uh 100 years of uh grievous intrusions and and uh, and misdeeds I have to say by the state of Oklahoma Robbie, I, I want to pivot a little bit also and just go back a little bit earlier into the history. And I, I really appreciate it, just uh, the narrative that you presented in the book. And it, it pertains not only to the Creeks, but other southeastern tribes and, uh, you know, the revolutionary and civil wars, shifting economic and political factors. The slave trade impacted uh, these native nations as well. And I think uh, so often, you know, we think of of the Native American experience as being just one of just a number of injustices and blunders and, and being taken advantage of. But what really comes across uh, in the history is just how adept and skilled uh, some of these early Southeastern Native nations were with regard to to managing their economies, to being political negotiators. And sure, they made some tactical mistakes and they made some errors, but they were also just extremely shrewd and strategic. And uh, I was just really impressed and proud to learn that history of, of some of the really smart tactical moves that, that these tribes made so long ago with uh, you know, limited resources and, and limited experience. Yes, and um, I'm, I'm a real uh, proponent of what I call deep history, you know, looking. And so the, the historical part of this begins basically with the peopling of America and then moves through, you know, to contemporary times, showing an unbroken, you know, an unbroken history of, of uh, in this case, the Muscogees in, in, this, in this region, you know, in, in this country. And, um, and you're right. I mean, the history, it's, ha- it's had its ups and downs. And there's no, I mean, when you, if you read the, if you look at the entire history, yes, or many, many, many times, in fact, I would say, for most of the history of uh, the relations between, um, you know, Euro-Americans Euro and, and uh, the Muscogees, that uh, for most of that history, I, I would say the Muscogees held the upper hand. And it didn't change until removal, I would say. And even then, even with removal, which was devastating for so many people, but even with removal, even afterwards, that, that savviness and that being very smart and strategic in how they were dealing with um, and how the Creeks, and I'm talking mostly about the Creek governments and leaders at this point, how those folks were dealing with, say, the federal and state go- and later state governments that they were having to encounter and, and get entangled with. Um, so, you know, wh- and even today, I mean, the legal fights, uh, the McGirt case is, you know, these are, these are, again, very strategic, very smart uh, ways of, of uh, dealing with really difficult situations. And um, one thing that I'm always struck with is how with the Muscogees, they had to, you know, they they, um, they re- rebuilt their nation several times. You know, uh, the resiliency there was, was really uh, impressive and really astonishing. Um, 
And then in that early history, like I said, you know, the pre-contact times, um, I, I have always argued that Native people held the balance of power in the South, in the Southeast, up until up until removal. And, and uh, you know, the recent works on removal show that that was an international affair. You know, this was a mm-hmm. this was a push, not just by Andrew Jackson and a few Georgian Georgia senators and politicians. This was a huge international endeavor, you know, financed by large international banks uh, and corporations. You know, and so it was it was um it was a huge land grab, you know, as we know. And uh and at that point I think the the Muscogees were in a in a in a kind of a in a very bad situation. They couldn't they couldn't really fight that. And but once after removal though, again, they regrouped, they, you know, gathered their strength and they have continued to fight um to this day. And as you noted in the book, uh one of the, the major factors in, in that shift when, when the Muscogee lost power was when the economy really changed from fur trading to, to cotton. And they weren't really uh, able to adapt to that transition, and that was kind of the beginning of the end, in a sense. Yes, and when 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 the settlers got here, um, this is what I used to tell my classes when I was teaching. You know, it, it it wasn't all you know pilgrims looking for religious freedom. Most of these people were business people. They were here to make a buck, and they made money by incorporating native people into this, uh, as one of our callers said, into this you know capitalist system. And many people became involved in this system as providers of of first Indian slaves and later uh, skins and furs. And for that period, especially the fur trade era, um, native people were an integral cog in that large economic machinery. Um, and and so they were vital to the to the Euro, Europeans and later Americans because they were they were a vital cog in this large economic machine that was keeping the colonies afloat, and Native people were prospering as well, you know, and but at, at um you know in the early 19th century, the commodity most in command most in demand changes from skins and furs to um. To land for cotton growing in the South, in the American South, and uh, and then at that point, Native people are no longer cogs in this machinery. At they were not seen as cogs in this machinery; they were seen as obstacles because they owned the land. And um, throughout the American South, Native now Native in the Native South, uh, the Native people were really were not willing to give an inch of their land. Uh, at that point, and and actually, many of those folks were becoming cotton farmers. So it's not even that they couldn't be, have become again important cogs in this economic machinery. Is that uh, these white planters and land speculators uh, again got this massive economic machine behind them and started this massive land grab? And well, uh, the Indian people were not considered important in, in you know parts of this new economic endeavor. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Robbie. And again, like I said, I really enjoyed uh, reading the history there that uh, you so painstakingly compiled. And let's go back to, to Bob now, but before we wrap up the show here in the next few minutes. And Bob, I want to ask you as for a closing thought here, how well do you think the average American understands the issues we're talking about today? Uh, you know, the ruling with McGirt, uh, some of these long standing treaties, uh, the history that 
that Robbie has shared. How well do people understand this, and how can this book better educate and inform people on historical and contemporary issues that, that impact Native people today? I'm afraid that the American public knows very little about this. Uh, the moment you started to ask that question, I started thinking of critical race theory, CRT, and there's almost a pushback now by some forces that our true history be taught. But the, the, what's really intriguing about Indian treaties is these are not just history under the Constitution. They are the current law of today. They're why certain tribes have certain rights maybe to fish off their reservation lands. I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I've written about tribal rights to fish for salmon off uh, their reservations because of what their 1855 treaties say. What Robbie and I have been talking about, the 1866 Treaty of the Muscogee Creek is crucial, and it's why Justice Gorsuch wrote the opinion and was the deciding vote in that case. So it, it, it's a shame that Americans don't know more about all of their history, but to understand the modern-day existence and rights of in, indigenous nations is crucial. Let me give you a statistic. Uh, there are, I think, what, 435 people in the House of Representatives? Only 85 of those congressmen and women have a tribe in their district. So the vast majority, even of the members of the House of Cong uh, Representatives, do not – they may not know that much about Indian law. They may not know it's called federal Indian law, and they may not know about treaties that are the supreme law of the land under Article 6 of the Constitution. So to finish out the point, our book, I hope, will educate people. I think the word McGirt, the, the name of the case, I think is fairly well known in Oklahoma because it is so crucial there. And the governor and the attorney general have been doing nothing but talking about McGirt for the past nearly three years. Well, folks, uh, we have now reached the end of our hour. So before we wrap up, I want to thank our guests Robert Miller and Robbie Etheridge for joining us to talk about their new book. The title again is A Promise Kept, The Muscogee Creek Nation and McGirt versus Oklahoma. Hope you'll join us here on Native America Calling again tomorrow. We'll discuss the public utility company working to repatriate 5,000 remains and other objects to tribes. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day. Support from the Self-Governance Communication and Education Tribal Consortium presenting the 2023 Tribal Self-Governance Conference at the River Spirit Resort in Tulsa, Oklahoma, June 26th to the 29th. Learn how tribes are using self-governance for the delivery of programs and services for their citizens and communities, and how this authority improves the health and well-being of tribal communities. Registration closes June 23rd at tribalselfgov.org. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.